0: morning Bethel family. All right, let's read our scripture reading together. This is the passage that Pastor Tyler is going to be preaching on. So if you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read verses 35 to 58, the latter section of this chapter. Please stand with me in honor of God's word and follow along as I read. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Morning, Bethel. If you are new with us or if you haven't been, in, been here in a while... We are currently in a series on 1 Corinthians called Cruciform Living. Cruciform meaning in the shape of the cross. Throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul has been calling the Corinthians to be shaped by the cross of Christ instead of the world around them, and to live their lives with the cross of Christ at the center. They need to hear that message, they needed that, and so do we. Now this week... Or, I'm sorry, last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 34. And there, Paul corrects a potentially disastrous belief held by some at the church in Corinth. Um, Specifically, some believers were saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Now, by that, they didn't mean that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. In fact, Paul reminds them of the gospel that they had believed, that they had received that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose three days later. No, they meant that they wouldn't be raised from the dead. And Paul corrects that wrong belief, and he explains that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and because that's true, Jesus' followers will also be raised when he returns to destroy all his enemies, death included. And so this morning, we're continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're focusing on verses 35 to 58. And here, Paul no longer explains that the dead will be raised. Instead, he explains how the dead will be raised. And as he does that, at least two things become clear. One, that our bodies will be transformed into Christ's likeness, and two, that God, through Christ gives us victory over sin and death. Now, as I've prepared to preach this morning, I've thought a lot about transformation and how prevalent it is in our culture. Let me give you just two quick examples from my own experience. My wife Whitney and I, we love to watch a show that comes on HGTV called Fixer Upper. If you haven't seen it, in each episode, a married couple named Chip and Joanna Gaines help their clients choose a house that typically needs a lot of work, but the upside is it's in a great neighborhood. And Chip and Joanna, over the course of each episode, turn these homes into these uh, amazing creations tailor-made for their clients. And Whitney and I really like that show for a couple of reasons. One, we're homeowners in our early 30s, and apparently when you're a homeowner in your early 30s and beyond, you watch HGTV. That's what you do. So that's one. But two, we like to see the before and after. So at the end of each episode, Chip and Joanna stand in front of this updated home, holding this huge picture of the house before it was renovated. And the clients, they stand in front of the before picture so that they can't see the renovated home. And then Chip and Joanna say something like, So-and-so, are y'all ready to see your fixer upper? They're southerners, so they say y'all, which I appreciate. And so then they pull this picture away to reveal this new transformed home. And it's a really great moment. Sometimes people like shout when they see their house. Sometimes people's jaws just drop open. Sometimes people cry. All kinds of different reactions. Um, Another example though from, from my life, Beauty and the Beast. My kids love that movie. It starts with an unloving, inhospitable prince turning away an old woman seeking shelter in his castle. Unbeknownst to him, the old lady was really a sorceress, and because of the prince's wicked actions, uh, the sorceress puts the prince, his staff, and the castle itself under a curse that can only be lifted when he loves someone and is loved in return. And at the end of that movie, and if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, but you've had plenty of time. It's been out for a long time. The prince finds true love, and the curse is lifted. And The prince, the staff, and even the castle itself are transformed to their former glory, yet with the new addition of love. A friend of mine recently told me that uh, he watched this movie with his young daughter, and she cried at the end when everything's restored. He asked her why she was crying, and she didn't know it. She wasn't able to explain it. Um, apparently, she didn't understand that there's such a thing as happy tears. So why do shows and movies like this resonate with us? Like, Why do we love to see this kind of thing? I'm sure there are a lot of reasons, but one, I think, is that we love to witness transformation. We love to see what's old, made new, What's messy made clean, what's weak made strong, what's wrong made right, what's ugly made beautiful. That is what 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 58 is all about. So that said, uh, let's consider verses 35 to 49 and our first point here, transformation. So Paul starts in verse 35 by raising the questions, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Remember why this would have been difficult for the Corinthians to grasp. At this time in the Greco-Roman world, most people either believed that death was the end, that when you die, there's nothing beyond it, there's no afterlife. Or they believed that death ushered a person into a realm where the soul, the immaterial, uh, greater part of a person exist apart from the body, the material lesser part of a person. So you leave your body, you leave the material behind. Existing body and soul in the afterlife was virtually inconceivable at this point in time. So if the dead are going to be raised, as Paul has claimed earlier in chapter 15, how is that possible? How can bodies like ours that grow weak, decay, die and decompose after we die, exist for eternity. Paul explains that in the verses to come. But before he specifically mentions our own bodily resurrection, he uses two examples to show that resurrection is possible. The first has to do with transformation that occurs in nature. So look with me at verses 36 to 38. Paul says, "'You foolish person.'" what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed, its own body. Paul's showing the Corinthians that they already witnessed transformation brought about by God in daily life. It's like, and I, uh, Asked Dave uh, or asked Gail, who helped me uh, get connected with Dave Grubb, who brought this in for me. So thank you, Dave. It's like this seed right here. You can probably barely see it, but it's a small uh, little uh, muskmelon seed. So what Paul's explaining is like this: this seed has its own body, but it's not what it will be unless it's planted in the ground. If you plant it though, it dies and it gives way to something new, something that is similar, yet significantly different. And in this case, this muskmelon seed will become this muskmelon plant, which I'm told about 30 days from now, it would become a vine, which about 30 days after that, it would start producing muskmelons. So there's continuity here, like this seed will become a plant that produces muskmelons. It can't do anything else. That's what it's going to do. But there's also discontinuity. This small little seed will become this nice, green, fruit-producing plant. I think what Paul wants the Corinthians to see here is that God can affect transformation with our bodies too. They may not be fit for eternity right now, they aren't, but God can certainly make them that way. And when He does, they'll be similar, yet so much different than what they are right now. Nature itself provides us with an example of that kind of transformation. Paul continues with a second example in verses 39 to 41. He says there, "...for not all flesh is the same." There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Here, Paul's making the point, I think, that God gives his creation bodies as he chooses and bodies fit for the environment in which they live. So, of earthly bodies which have their own glory, not all flesh, Paul says, is the same. Humans and animals which live on land have one kind. Birds which fly in the air have another kind. And fish which swim in the sea have another kind. And of heavenly bodies which have their own glory, there is one glory or brightness of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. So, yes, our bodies cannot exist in heaven as they are now. But do you think that's a problem for God? Absolutely not. Even now, we can witness how God gives created things, bodies suited for their own context. He certainly can, and He will, do that for us at the resurrection when Jesus returns. So Paul continues in verses 42 to 44, and now he specifically addresses our own bodies. Here he picks up the sowing language that he used a few verses prior, and he uses it to contrast our current bodies with what they one day will be. He says in verse 42 and following, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that's our present body, is perishable. What is raised, our transformed body, is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. That, that means a, a body animated and by the soul. It is raised a spiritual body, a body animated enlivened by the Holy Spirit. Our present bodies are perishable. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And because of that, we will all die unless Jesus returns first. Our present bodies are sown in dishonor or humiliation. They're sown in weakness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, our outer self is wasting away. Some of us feel this more than others, but we all know it to be true. We have aches and pains. We get sick. We grow old, and we can fight it tooth and nail But in the end, the result for everyone apart from Christ's return is the same. We are going to die. I'm going to die. You are going to die. That is terribly sad news. But Oh, there is such great news here. What is sown, Paul says, is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable, won't die. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. Our present bodies, subject to humiliation, weakness, death, and decay, will be transformed. At present, we have natural bodies or bodies given life by the soul, but when raised, we will have spiritual bodies, supernatural bodies given life by the Holy Spirit, Like the seed that becomes a fruit-producing plant, we will gloriously be changed and suited for the life that's to come. But how will this be? How is Paul so certain that's gonna happen? Where is he getting that information? Look with me at verses 44 to 49. It, our present body, is sown a natural body, it has raised a spiritual body. so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So like Paul does earlier in chapter 15 here, he's grounding his argument about the resurrection of believers and what's true of Adam and Jesus. Earlier in verses 20 to 22, he made the point that death came through Adam but resurrection comes through Jesus. Now, he's making a similar point, explaining that in our natural bodies, we bear the image of Adam, but in our spiritual bodies to come, we will bear the image of Jesus. So Adam, Paul says in verse 45, he's quoting Genesis 2, 7 there, became a living being. The Greek word translated being there is very similar to, to the word translated natural in verse 44 to refer to our natural bodies. So Adam was from the earth. He was a man of dust, and we have borne his image. That's bad news for us. It means that just as Adam was sentenced to death for his rebellion against God, so we too, and justly so because of our sin, bear the curse of Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are of dust for you are dust and to dust you shall return we'll die we're sinners by nature and by choice the wages of sin is death but thankfully that is not the end of the story god sent jesus the last adam to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus lived a perfect life where we've sinned. He died a sacrificial death on the cross for our iniquities, and three days later, he was raised from the dead, and he rose a life-giving spirit, having a new, glorified body, similar to the one he had before, but wonderfully different. Joe Rigney describes Christ's resurrection this way. I think this is helpful. He says, picture the scene in Jesus's tomb on that glorious morning as his mangled body lay there, filling the small cave with the stench of death. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the spirit of the living God blew through that hall of corruption and something happened that had never never before been seen in human history. A new kind of life energized and transformed the fleshly body of Jesus of Nazareth. This was more than creation out of nothing. It was creation out of death. In that moment, God inaugurated his new creation. In that moment, the life and power and glory of the age to come invaded the present age of sin and flesh and death. In that moment, humanity was forever changed. That is good news. And because that is true, because of what Jesus has done, we have the assurance that if we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus as our Savior and King, we will not only be saved from our sins, but we will also be raised from the dead at Jesus' return and transformed just as He was in His resurrection. Paul says this very thing in Philippians three twenty 20-21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself that will happen. If you are here this morning and if you aren't a Christian, this is really good news. The bad news is that because of your sin, you will one day die. And you can either spend eternity paying for the sin you've committed against an eternal God, or right now, today, you can run to Jesus as your Savior and King and find rest for your soul, forgiveness for your sins. All He requires is that you come empty-handed and accept the free gift that He offers you this morning. So die to your sins. Die to your efforts at making yourself righteous, trust Jesus to save you and be your king. He will. As C.S. Lewis says, die before you die. There's no chance after. Now, for those of us who are following Jesus, let me suggest three implications of this text, although there are many. One, this means that we must be serious about obedience in the present One day, our natural bodies will be transformed into spiritual ones. There's definitely a difference uh, in what we will be and what we are now, but there's also similarity. Our bodies will be transformed. We won't be entirely new, different beings. That means that what we do in our bodies right now matters. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 6 when he tells the Corinthians to abstain from sexual immorality. So let's seek by the power of the Spirit to bear the image of Jesus now more and more every day. Let's be diligent about putting off sin and putting on obedience all the while looking forward to that day when we will be made new never to sin or die again. C.S. Lewis, again, he puts it like this. There is in our present pilgrim condition plenty of room, more than most of us like, for abstinence and renunciation and mortifying our natural desires. But behind all asceticism, the thought should be, who will trust us with the true wealth if we cannot be trusted even with the wealth that perishes? Who will trust me with a spiritual body if I cannot control even an earthly body? These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. We must learn to manage, not that we may someday be freed of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback, confident and rejoicing those greater mounts, those winged, shining and world-shaking horses, which perhaps even now expect us with impatience pawing and snorting in the king's stables." Not that the gallop would be of any value unless it were a gallop with the king, but how else, since he has retained his own charger or horse, should we accompany him? That is beautiful. Let's mortify our flesh now by the power of the Spirit looking forward to the transformation that's to come. Two, this means that we must share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus and keep sharing the gospel with those who do. this This passage is a picture of what awaits everyone who turns in faith to Jesus. So let's make sure as best we can that we all get there. Remember why Paul's writing this chapter. By saying there's no resurrection of the dead, some Corinthians are in danger of abandoning the gospel. Paul loves them too much to let that go on uncorrected. He knows what's at stake. If you abandon the gospel, you've abandoned Jesus. If you abandon Jesus, you've proved that you would never in the faith in the first place. So Paul exhorts these individuals. He exhorts this church to hold fast to the gospel, to stay faithful. We need that same kind of urgency in looking out for our brothers and sisters in Christ here. That's one reason why we emphasize community groups so much. We need each other we need to exhort one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to tell each other, keep running, hang on, hold fast to Christ. We need that kind of urgency too with those in our lives who don't know Jesus. Paul doesn't address those folks in this passage, but elsewhere in Scripture, it's made plain that they have a future after death too. And that's eternal punishment in hell separated from God. We won't take time to read it now, but a text uh, like Revelation 20, 11 to 15 speaks to that if you want to read that later. But this all being the case, how can we not tell our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, our family the good news of the gospel and urge them to turn to Jesus in faith? We can and we must do that. Again, uh hear from C.S. Lewis here. He says, the load our weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of those destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all plays, all politics. There are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Three, this means that we can have hope in our suffering. I know there are people here this morning who are suffering. If you are here and that's you, or if you know someone who is, I pray that this passage is an encouragement to you. For those who are in Christ, death and suffering will not have the final word. Jesus is going, will transform our bodies to be like his glorious body. That means there will be no more growing old, no more aches and pains, no more sickness, no more disability, no more disease, no more chronic pain, no more cancer, no more dementia, no more Alzheimer's, no more death. All of it will be gone forever, and it's never coming back. That is good news. That brings us to our second And our final point this morning, victory. This is verses 50 to 58. Paul says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, which is another way of saying our earthly, mortal, natural bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The Corinthians likely would have agreed with this. This wouldn't have been news to them. But behold, Paul says in verse 51, I tell you a mystery, which is something that has been hidden but has been now divinely revealed. He says, we shall not all sleep to die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Here, Paul's expanding on what he said earlier. We will be raised imperishable. We will bear the image of Jesus. And here's when it happens. When the last trumpet sounds, which signifies the end, all those in Christ will be changed. In the blink of an eye, like the snap of a finger, those who are alive will be transformed, and those who are dead in Christ will be raised imperishable never to die again. For, Paul says in verse 53, this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So this must happen. The mortal body must put on immortality. And the good news is that it will. Paul says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? When Christ returns and transforms our, bo- our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, 14, those are the two prophecies he quotes right there, will be fulfilled. Death will finally forever be put in the grave. Doesn't that make you want to praise the Lord? Doesn't that make you just want to shout? It should bury. Brother, a day is coming if the Lord takes you beforehand When he comes back, you will hear a trumpet sound. Your body will burst out of that grave and that wheelchair is not coming with you. You will leave it behind. Man, that's good news. It should make us want to shout for joy. Verse 56, it explains why. Paul says... The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Apart from Christ, we're dead. We are dead in our sins. Paul explains in Romans 7 that although the law is good, it produced death in us. Because our sinful natures take the Lord's commands and twist them. We hear the command, we hear the law of the Lord, and naturally on our own, we rebel, we stiff arm it. It's an occasion for us to sin all the more. The law can't save us. And because of our sin, we have earned death for ourselves. As Paul says in Romans 6:23, the wages of sin is death. But again, there is good news. There's more to Romans 6.23 than the wages of sin is death. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. So yes, death is an enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. Its doom is sure. We will one day die, but because of what Jesus has done, that is not going to be the end for us. We will be raised to life, never to sin, never to die again. Death will not have the final word. It won't then in the future, and it doesn't right now. Notice that Paul says in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Gives, not will give, he gives. We have the victory through Christ right now. Yes, if Jesus doesn't return beforehand, we are going to die Jesus will transform us. But even now, the Holy Spirit is working in us day by day, conforming us into the image of Jesus. We're being prepared by the Spirit for what's to come. Death doesn't have dominion here. Because this is true, because we will be raised to life one day and transformed, because we have the victory in Jesus now, we must remain steadfast and immovable. So Paul says in verse 58, therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We must hold fast to the gospel. We must not waver from the gospel. We must keep on believing. We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Remember, the series is all about cruciform living Cruciform meaning in the shape of the cross. The Corinthians needed to hear that they need to live with the cross of Christ at the center of their lives to be shaped by the cross, not by the culture. We need that too. There are temptations on every side for us to fall astray. So we need to keep Jesus in front of us, keep our eyes on him. We must also abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor isn't in vain. How encouraging is that? In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That is not just true for Pastor Chris and me. That's true for all of us in Christ. One commentator, he puts it this way, It is a matter of greatest encouragement to Christian workers, most of whom are away from the public eye, unsung heroes and heroines, getting on faithfully and quietly with their God-given tasks, that, they, that what they do in the Lord during the present time will last, will matter, will stand for all time. How God will take our prayer, our art, our love, our writing, our political action, our music, our honesty, our daily work, our pastoral care, our teaching, our whole selves, how God will take this and weave its varied strands into the glorious tapestry of his new creation, we can at present have no idea. That he will do so as part of the truth of the resurrection and perhaps one of the most comforting parts of all. Yes, God is so good to us, is he not? Two more applications before we close here. One, I think this text means we have nothing to fear. Why would we fear man when this is our future? Like Psalm 118.6 says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Why would we fear risk when this is our future? Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul embodied that. Paul embodied risk. He was willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the saints we can be empowered in that same way. And I think looking forward to our future resurrection in Christ is a means toward those ends. We know our future, so we can look risk in the face right now and continue moving forward. Why would, why would we fear the loss of the good, godly things we love here on earth? I think sometimes when we think of death, we see it as an enemy, and rightly so it is. But We see it as an enemy that steals away all the good things that we love and give joy to us on earth. But I think this text gives us reason to believe that that's not the case. We don't know what exactly it's going to be like when we are in the new heaven and the new earth. But there are some things we can say, some conclusions we can draw. Listen to Joe Rigney's explanation of this. I think this is so encouraging. He says, God is preparing us to be spiritual and embodied men and women. That means we'll be soul and body. That is, God is preparing us to live in bodies that are enlivened and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus was at his resurrection, the last Adam is a life-giving spirit, and we must bear his image as Holy Spirit transformed and embodied people the implications of this future hope are far-reaching. It means that when we say goodbye to our earthly delights at death, we are really saying, see you later. We regard death as gain, first because we are going to be with Christ right then, and then because one day we'll hear a trumpet blast from an archangel and find ourselves restored to our earthly bodies and unleashed to use them in ways that we can't comprehend yet. Death takes away our earthly delights and then the resurrection restores them in spades. Nothing good will ever finally be lost. It's not just that all the best joys here point to joys there, but that many of the best joys here will actually be there, only glorified, transfigured, and heightened beyond our imagination. Death does not win. God gets the final word, the new heaven and the new earth will be glorious, first and foremost, because we are with our Savior. But also, as Rigney explains, there's a continuity there. What we love about life here will be transformed, glorified, made better there. Finally, why would we fear death if this is our future? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews two fourteen to 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has already dealt a death blow to death and a day is coming when he's going to finish him off. That means death doesn't have dominion over us. That's why I think Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 22, that all things are yours, and in that list, he includes death. How can he include death in that? How can death be yours? It's still an enemy enemy to be sure, but he can include death in that list because Jesus has defeated it, and he gives us the victory over it right now. Finally, I think this text means we should celebrate. Amen. Amen. You, Christian, will be raised to life and transformed one day. No more sin. No more death. Only everlasting life in the new heaven and the new earth with our God, with our Redeemer. If that is not cause for celebration, I don't know what is. Russell Moore puts it this way. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die is a sham. The alternative is not a refusal to eat, drink, or be merry. That would be ingratitude. Instead, with the resurrected Jesus, we sing out, Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. And I would add, today we live, and tomorrow we will live forever. So much cause for celebration. Death is an enemy now. Death takes life from us. There's reason to mourn. But we do not mourn as those without hope. We have all the hope in the world. We are not to be pitied. We have a very, very bright future ahead. We've got a bright future now. The Holy Spirit is in us, making us like Jesus. We have the assurance that this is happening. We have the assurance that a day is coming when God will transform our lowly bodies. Jesus will do this to be like his glorious body, and that is good news. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for this text, for the encouragement that's here, for the sure, certain hope that's here. Lord, we are grateful for why this text can be written, that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, He died for us. Lord, we were dead in our sins, but you sent Christ to do for us what we couldn't do, he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, and was raised on the third day. He conquered sin and death and gives us the victory in him too. So, Lord, we are grateful. We praise you for that we magnify Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people of the cross, help us to leave this place celebrating, to leave this place magnifying Christ, singing his praises, telling others about him, preaching the gospel to those who don't know you and preaching the gospel to those who do. So Lord, stir up in our hearts joy and celebration at what we have seen here this morning. In Christ's name, amen.